5, 26, 23. If you're in the United States, you get the date. If not, it's the crazy way we do it in America. It's 2023, May the 26th. This is the Room Now Podcast. Hi, I'm Jack Cush, executive editor of RoomNow.com. A lot happening this week. Let's get right into it. Let's start with biosimilars. We reported that's going to be eight new biosimilars of adalimumab in 2023. Wait, hold the presses. There's a ninth. It's called Euphlema. Not sure what it, where it's from and whatnot, but it looks like the adalimumab biosimilar count keeps rising. But what I reported this week, actually, I thought was more important. That was of all the biosimilars of adalimumab, only one just came out. That's a pen, and that's the Cytelzo. It's an auto-injector of adalimumab. So we are getting more back to a newer, cheaper version of biologics. I think it's a good move. Here's a study about fibromyalgia and GI manifestations. You know, my patients with fibromyalgia do have a lot of GI manifestations, probably above and beyond irritable bowel syndrome. This study was a retrospective EMR study from Israel, and it looked at almost 19,000 fibromyalgia patients, compared them one to two, with controls and showed that FM patients have significantly more, as you'd expect, irritable bowel syndrome, 4.6 fold higher. But did you expect GERD to be increased, 2.6 higher? Peptic ulcer disease, two point or twofold higher. Celiac disease, twofold higher. But no increase in GI malignancies. The question is. Is GERD and peptic ulcer disease and celiac disease really increased in fibromyalgia? Or do fibromyalgia patients seek more medical help and get more diagnoses, deservedly or not? Actually, I think that fibromyalgia patients do have a higher risk of all these GI manifestations because these are common GI manifestations in the population, as is fibromyalgia. So these are co-associations. Is it causal or casual? Someday someone will tell me. Uh, We always point to the specificity of double-stranded DNA. And I like this report, um, a a serological analysis of double-stranded DNA positivity in 3,500 SLE patients with almost 40,000 patient visits with serologies. Persistently positive double-stranded DNA, what's the number? I always thought it was above 20%. This is 29.5%. Um, and in 34%, double-stranded DNAs did fluctuate, meaning it went up and down. So let me just make that point. 29% persistent, 34% fluctuating. I've always taught that the predictive value of double-stranded DNA is based on when it can go up and down with activity and response to therapy. Based on those numbers, there's a 5% difference suggesting very few patients or basically that's 5 out of 35 or 1 in 7, or is it 5% overall? Would the double-stranded DNA being fluctuating predict outcomes? But turns out that both persistently positive and fluctuating double-stranded DNAs do predict a higher rate of flares. Now, it may not be one-to-one visit-to-visit, but nonetheless, having persistently positive 56% higher risk of flare having fluctuating 46% higher risk of flare, and then doubling of the double-stranded DNA was associated with about a one-third increase in flare rates, a 33 to 
high risk. These are all significant numbers. I think that often we don't pay attention to lymphadenopathy in SLE patients. They got so much going on with them. Maybe we don't start looking for lymph nodes at petrochlear, you know, unusual places beyond the neck, um, you know, um, axillary palpation is never fun, don't you think? But we got to do it. So here's a 14-year study of 255 lupus patients and looked at the incidence of lymphadenopathy. It was found in 33% of lupus patients. Turns out that in less than 1%, 0.8%, it was due to lymphoma and 0.4%, it was due to tuberculosis. Turns out that having lymphadenopathy was associated with other manifestations of lupus, threefold higher risk of fever, fourfold higher risk of pericarditis, threefold higher risk of membranous glomerulonephritis and leukopenia. Having um, lymphadenopathy was not associated with weight loss, myocarditis, or myositis. The bottom line is um, that if it's atypical or unusual or unexpected, don't be hesitant to do a biopsy to show that it is due to lupus and not due to lymphoma or other causes. The Spanish registry, the BioVedacer, looked at RA and uh, ankylosing spondylitis and psoriatic arthritis patients on biologics, and they wanted to look specifically at those patients who had been previously tr- been treated with a biologic who, develop, who went into remission. Uh, and of their 33, 66 patients, only eight, 80 patients, or 2.4%, developed remission that led to biologic discontinuation. So it's not common, which is my point all along. This, this quest for monotherapy, this quest to wean therapy, the quest to get off, is kind of nonsensical when you spend your whole life worrying about these patients and it's difficult to get them under control. And what are the odds that they're going to go into drug-free remission and stay there? In this Spanish study, it's only 2.4%. That doesn't sway me. The risk, the risk factors for being able to discontinue with all, being in remission is having a short disease duration, uh, not having had prior um, conventional DMARDs, or prior use, shorter use of other biologic DMARDs. You overall, not unexpected, less success with discontinuation if the patient was a smoker or was ACPA positive. Again, I'm not having many conversations with my patients about lessening therapy, but my patients are talking to me about lessening therapy, and I can guide them, but I'm not gung-ho about that. I'm more about control than I am about drug-free remission. I mean, I might as well be, be buying lottery tickets all the time. The in-build study, as you know, is a pivotal study that led to the approval of nintendinib for use in uh, all-cause ILD. That was a 663-patient study. They did a sub-analysis of that, looking at the patients who had rheumatoid arthritis-associated ILD, and they looked to see what the outcomes were. And it was basically the same as the in-build study overall, meaning it showed a significant um, um, slowing of FVC decline at week 52. So it was minus 82 milliliters per year on nintendinib versus almost 200 on placebo. On, again, one of the downsides, this is a good therapy. I think it really has a place in management of ILD. It's often limited by side effects, diarrhea and 62%, just leading to discontinuation, the drug 
um, side effects led to discontinuation in 24%. So it's hard to manage. We did a replay this week of the spondoarthritis uh, session at Room Now Live. Great lectures by Deodar, Padubny, and Ravel. In uh, Atul Deodar's lecture, he talked about the 345 rule. A lot of people like that on Twitter and at the lecture. He said you can more accurately diagnose ankylosing spondylitis or spa if you have erosions in three or more SI joint quadrants or bulmaroedema in four or more SI joint quadrants or fat lesions in five or more SI joint quadrants. 345 rule increases the odds that the patient really does have um, sacroiliitis and uh, spondoarthritis. Uh, also this week, and I, not, not talked about here, a report that shows that these lesions that show up, especially bone marrow lesions that show up on MRI, do predict five-year worsening to, and progression of SI joint disease. As Dr. Padubny uh, and Dr. Diodar talked about, there are some normal healthy people have abnorma- abnormalities of the SI joint, but that will only be bone marrow edema. It will be not meet the 345 rule. Um, they often have traumatic reasons um, like hockey players and workers and things like that. So some gout topics. Um, uh, let's go with the medi- medieval ruler Bermundo II was also nicknamed the Gaudi or El Gatoso. He was king of Leon and Galicia uh, around uh, in 982. Um, while he was a successful ruler, he ultimately lost a bunch of wars and his reign, all presumably due to gout. He was unable to travel, get on his horse, and lead the charge. Instead, he was carried around by litters as he lost all his wars. Not good. This past week in the UK, where they're still looking for the guy named the Gowdy, um, they softened their warnings. The MHRA is akin to RFDA. And they softened their regulatory warnings on Fabuxistat use based on a reconsideration of FAST data. The old CARE study showed increased risk of cardiovascular events and a big warning about cardiovascular events when using Fabuxistat and gout. Care, uh, the FAST study, which was a follow-up, didn't show so much. So they kind of softened their warning, stating that you should exercise caution if considering Fabuxistat in gout patients of prior history of major cardiovascular disease. They also think you should worry if there's a high urate load or TOFI load or when starting urate-lowering therapy. You're starting Fabuxistat. Are you not starting urate-lowering therapy? Hello. Lastly, colchicine, a drug known to work in gout, was shown this week in a Danish trial of 100 hand-OA patients that it doesn't work. These are elderly patients who met the criteria for hand-OA, given placebo or colchicine 0.5 BID 12 weeks, no difference in the outcomes. Both groups got a little bit better and not so much. Another example where colchicine doesn't work. It doesn't really work as an anti-inflammatory other than an FMF. Um, I use it. I almost never use it in gout anymore, not since they increased the price of it. I use nosteroidals and steroids. Colchicine doesn't work in Stills disease and auto-inflammatory disease. So uh, it's important to know that. I know it's cheap uh, in some countries and expensive in the United States, but uh, you need to know where it works. Uh, what also works? Lupatacitinib uh, in the EU this week was given FDA, no, I'm sorry, in the US. The FDA approved Lupatacitinib or Rinvoq for use in moderate to severely active Crohn's disease based on the UXC, the UXL, and the UENDURE uh, study, the last one being a maintenance trial. This is the seventh FDA approval for Upatacitinib in the United States. Um, 
We're going to end with pain. A Cochrane meta-analysis about antidepressant use for pain shows that they don't work across the board, a bunch of them. And the data is heterogeneous. There's problems with bias. The most of the data was not convincing. They did suggest that there's one small exception, and that is duloxetine, only at the standard dose of 60 milligrams once a day, not higher doses, not lower doses, but uh, and especially not at higher doses. So the antidepressant used to control pain, probably not such a great idea. Uh, are you adding toxicity and getting no benefit? I certainly will use antidepressants when depression's in play. I'll use it as adjunctive therapy to control pain, and FM is hard to control, but this data would probably say not so much. But again, not all those studies were like that scenario. These were pain of many different causes, including OA pain, mechanical pain, etc. Um, uh, lastly, the burden of chronic pain in the United States. This is the results of the uh, National Hospital Inpatient Survey. Uh, it showed that um, the uh, incidence of chronic pain is about 50 cases per 1,000. That's new cases of chronic pain. The rates of persistent chronic pain is about 462 per 1,000. Or uh, persistent high-grade chronic pain, 361 cases. These are very high numbers. And their point was that chronic pain is more of a problem in the elderly or as we get older. And that this chronic pain statistic is actually significantly higher than the incidence or prevalence of depression and diabetes, two other major public health problems. This says that chronic pain is an even greater public health problem. That's it for this week on the podcast. Tune in next week for more. You can go to the website and check out these citations if you'd like to read more. Uh, next week, Tuesday night, rheumatology is a replay of a second RA session with great lectures by John Kay um, and, and others that uh, hopefully you'll enjoy that. That's Tuesday night. Uh, we'll see you next week. Be sure to watch our ULAR coverage starting next Wednesday. Uh, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, over the weekend, and the following Monday, we've got lined up a bunch of great reports, reporters, videos, podcasts, and articles, all coming from ULAR in Milan. Be there, or at least be there on Room Now. <laughs>